Good morning, Church 21, all over uh, NDG, downtown, South Shore, West Island, wherever you are, um, at home streaming. Um, thanks for taking this time, setting apart this time to uh, worship with us uh, and come together for God's word and for singing his praise. Um, let me just open with a prayer for our hearts, for myself, as we get into the word this morning. Father God, thank you for this day. Thank you for this new day. Um, Lord, in your steadfast love that we can come together together um, in worship to you. Um, I pray that you'd fill our hearts with your presence by your spirit. Um, and Lord, bless the meditations on my heart as well and the words of my mouth. Amen. Um, one thing that I've heard a lot recently in conversations is these talks about um, what's going on in government situations with the pandemic and things, a lot of messages being sent to our government about what's going on. Um, it comes up in regular daily conversations and even this week I've heard about some of the protests and maybe you've heard about the truckers. And uh, that's a point that I'm going to bring up uh, in, a, in a little bit about these truckers that are gathering together in Canada. Um, but I find it interesting because we all long for a change. We all long for something to function better. Have you ever wished that our government were a bit better? Have you ever wanted a change in our government? I think a lot of people are feeling that right now. Um, what would that look like? What, what would you change if you could change anything about well, not just the leadership in our government, but leadership in general, at, at your home, your workplace, in your own life? What kind of changes would you make? Um, or what kind of ways would you say you would be a different leader? If we had the chance to run a province or a country, how would we be any different? Um, how long would it take before we really realize, oh, this is a lot harder than I thought? It's a lot harder than I thought to run a country or province or, or anything. You know, it's hard enough to run our own life. If you're a millennial like me, it's hard enough to get through a normal week adulting without ruining someone's life, um, let alone, you know, running a government. So we're kind of stuck in this place between, I wish our government were better, but I'm also glad I'm not running the country. We're, we're plagued by our own faults and failures, but we're also beset by the flaws and the tyranny of other human leaders and institutions. We're stuck in this place, but I'm not here to talk about politics. I don't, I'm not one for talking about politics, but we're here to talk about Jesus, to open our Bibles to Mark chapter 11, which Brian read from this morning. And look at how Jesus rode into Jerusalem one day on a donkey. But Jesus wasn't just any man. He was more than just a man. There was a reason why Jesus came into Jerusalem that day riding on a donkey. And up until this point, we've seen Jesus declare and demonstrate the power of his kingdom in so many ways. He's healed people. He's proclaimed the forgiveness of their sins. He's done all these things. And now we come to this kind of a culmination where now he approaches Jerusalem, which is the capital, during this very important annual Passover feast, this festival where all of Israel gathers together and makes this pilgrimage to Jerusalem. And at this such important time, Jesus comes with a very intentional presentation of his kingdom and its king. 
So think about the protests again that we've seen going on in our time. Think about these truckers. If you haven't heard about the truckers, all these uh, freight truckers are getting together across Canada. They're driving uh, these significant routes. And here in Montreal, there's a bunch of truckers going to meet up this Friday in Vaudreuil. And they're all going to convoy slowly together to Ottawa to send a message to the government about their freedoms and about the changes that they would want to see. And so in Mark chapter 11, we see Jesus and his disciples, they're meeting up in this small town of, of Bethpage, and they're going to convoy into Jerusalem in this very intentional way to send a message to the world and to you and I. But how does riding a donkey change history? What does this word Hosanna that people are shouting out as they're laying down their coats, what does this mean for you and I? What does Jesus' change in leadership look like as he presents himself in Mark 11 to the nation of Israel and for us? We're going to look at this chapter or the, this portion. And there's two things that stand out that I mentioned. One is the the part where Jesus rides this donkey. And the second thing is where people are shouting out Hosanna. There's three things I want us to notice first about this uh, Jesus's arrival. If you open your Bible to Mark, you're probably going to see the heading called the triumphal entry or Jesus's triumphal entry in Jerusalem, something like that. So there's three things we notice about his triumphal entry. Um, if you're a note taker, the first point we'll, we'll see is that Jesus arrives in Jerusalem humbly. So Jesus arrives humbly, riding on a donkey. The donkey was this symbol of humility or this symbol of peace. I think of Eeyore, this extremely depressed kind of donkey, um, but this humble kind of animal. It wasn't like a horse. Uh, horses have always been kind of this symbol of nobility or power. Psalm uh, 20 verse 7 says that some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord, our God. So it's a symbol of power. Uh, if you were to look at transportation options of the day, I think you might see the, a horse would be your option for nobility. Um, a, maybe a camel would be your option for utility, but a, uh, a donkey would be chosen for its humility. So Jesus chooses this donkey, especially a borrowed and untrained colt of a donkey. It's a very clumsy and poor and humble image. Why do we see this? Its um, root comes back to a prophecy in the Old Testament of the Bible called Zechariah. If you look at Zechariah chapter 9, uh, it says this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey. And then adds this emphasis on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So it's significant that Jesus is presenting himself as king is what it says here in Zechariah, but that he would be humble. It's significant that Jesus was humble. And even the donkey emphasizes that point. It's just this illustration of this clumsy borrowed animal where Jesus rides into Jerusalem, rides into the capital. So this leads to the second point. He arrives humbly, but he also arrives to Jerusalem prophetically. Jesus arrives in Jerusalem prophetically. So the donkey was not just a, 
a humble, known for its humble status, but also we see a prophetic nature of this image. Jesus actually in the immediate context here prophesies exactly where and how and when they were going to go and find and obtain this donkey and bring it to him. Jesus knows exactly what's going on. He speaks this prophetic word. Yeah, just go into the town. You're going to find a donkey, untie it and bring it to me. Oh, people are going to ask you why you're taking this donkey. Just tell them the Lord needs it. And it happened exactly as he said. But in the big picture here, there's a huge prophecy being fulfilled when Jesus rides in on this donkey from what we just read in Zechariah chapter 9. Um, What this means for us, though, is that this was not just a sporadic or uncalculated event, just some random kind of thing that Jesus decided to do in the moment. This wasn't a test. This wasn't just posturing from a man on a mission who was coming into the city. This shows us that it was divine orchestration, that there was something supernatural taking place in the events as they unfolded, that it was not from man, it was not some quick idea, but it was from God, and it was from long ago. Matthew 21 recounts this story of the triumphal entry, but he adds this detail, that when Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, and people were saying, who is this? And the crowds responded, well, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. So we see this prophetic nature in what's going on, but he was so much more than a prophet, because what the prophet Zechariah was predicting was that this was actually going to be the entry of the king coming in on the donkey. And those verses describe the coming king of Zion, which is of Israel. So that brings us to our third point. The thing that we notice about this passage is that Jesus arrives in Jerusalem humbly. He arrives in Jerusalem prophetically, but he also arrives in Jerusalem triumphantly. We see this because people are praising him as he enters the city. They're laying down their coats on the ground and these palm branches on the ground in front of him. And they're shouting out this praise, Hosanna in the highest. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So this thing about laying down the coats and laying down the palm branches was a symbol of honor and respect given to kings. So we see that at least people honored and respected Jesus. And at most, people were worshiping him as as divine king, fulfilling this prophecy. Um, but then we come to this word, Hosanna. The, the, the crowd was going kind of in this parade before and behind Jesus, and they were shouting out, Hosanna. Um, blessed be he, the one who comes in the name of the Lord. And so uh, this, this, again, is an allusion to another fulfillment taking place. This was actually um, a familiar refrain to the people of Israel who were gathered together that day in Jerusalem for the Passover festival. This would be like, you know, any song that you know is going to be sung on a special occasion. So they're there for the Passover and they're singing Psalm 118. This would be familiar to them for any kind of get together that they have where they're coming to Jerusalem, where they're making this pilgrimage, where they're coming out of exile and going back to their hometown Uh, things like this, you would sing Psalm 118. It's like us, if you go to a wedding, you're going to hear that one song from Hall & Oates that everybody plays or, you know, Elvis can't help falling in love. There's just going to be that song. When it's New Year's Eve, we sing Old Lang Syne. 
Well, when you get together for the Passover festival, you sing Psalm 118. So people were singing Hosanna, Hosanna. They were singing, that's from Psalm 118, what we just read in the, in the Zoom scripture reading, um, when it says, save us, save us, Lord. To read that again from the Psalm, it says, save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. That's where we get that word Hosanna. Is from verse 25 there. And then it says, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. So, yes, everybody's singing uh, Hosanna. And, uh, and we see that, well, Jesus is being honored as king even from those verses. Because he's coming with salvation. He's coming to rescue the people. And he comes triumphantly. But how is Jesus going to be seen or received at his triumphal entry? Triumph to someone always means defeat to someone else. And so the Pharisees, these are the religious leaders at the time, they don't share the same response that the crowd has. I picture this kind of like the Grinch when he hears the Who's singing down in Whoville and he's like, what is going wrong? They're hearing Hosanna being sung to this Jesus. They wonder what is going on. So Luke adds this detail to the story when he says, the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. And Jesus answered them, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. So how was Jesus received? To the Pharisees, they were mad. To the people, they were singing. But I want to take one more point on why the people were singing. Because this song was so familiar to them for such occasions as this, we find that, yes, some were singing to Jesus. They were praising their Hosanna, their cry of salvation, save us, please, save us now to him who is coming in, riding on this donkey. The one who would bring salvation to Israel. But for others, we must admit that others were just singing along. It's easy to be caught up in the collective excitement of something that's going on. Especially if you're familiar with these words and you're just singing these universal truths like, yes, we want God to save Israel. Maybe now he's going to bring the freedom that we've always wanted as we're living under this Roman oppression. Yes, save us, please. But it's easy to just sing along. Hosanna, Hosanna, which means save us, save us. We see that there's this surface level that would later change because the shouts that day, save us, save us, would change later that week to crucify him, crucify him. People were singing along with the excitement of the crowd, but later they'd be shouting unanimously to crucify Jesus and free Barabbas. Because when we come to Mark chapter 11 and we see Jesus' triumphal entry, we still have five more chapters left in this book of Mark. But this is the last week of Jesus' life. Spoiler alert, this is the time where uh, we, we enter the last week of Jesus' life. The triumphal entry is the last time he would ever go to Jerusalem in his earthly ministry. So this is a pretty significant event where we see Jesus come in humbly, prophetically, and triumphantly. And I want to unpack that a little bit more for us. What does that mean for us today? Um, you know, how does riding a donkey change our history? What, is that, what does that mean for us? What is this word, Hosanna, that they were singing from Psalm 118? How does that have any impact on us today? The answer, I believe, is this, that uh, these three aspects of humility, divinity, and victory that we see in Jesus' triumphal entry 
2,000 years ago, all the way in Jerusalem, are exactly the necessary realities of the Savior that we need today. At the risk of sounding cheesy, for Jesus' triumphal entry in your life. Um, we need a Savior, but we don't just need any Savior. We need the Savior, the humble, prophetic, triumphant in our lives. But this is a foreign concept in our world. So to illustrate this point, I want to compare how Jesus demonstrates power, what his triumphal entry looks like, with some of the ways that we're more familiar with seeing power, control, and authority in our own world, in the cycles of tyranny that we're all too accustomed to living in. In the beginning, I said, you know, we wish our government were better, but we're also glad we're not running the country. Um, this is because mankind is bound to this cycle of imperfect leaders. Because no matter the time or the place that you live, we will always be stuck in that place, in that same position of sinners living under sinful people. Or to, to say it a little more dramatically, maybe tyrants living under tyranny. That's us. That's who we are. There's this new Netflix docuseries um, that's kind of funny. It's a dark comedy narrated by Peter Dinklage called How to Become a Tyrant. It gives you these good history lessons. Um, but he says that tyranny is government for people who want results. I think that's a good definition. We all want better results in our lives, right? Um, and in our world. Well, this show says that history has a playbook for accomplishing these results. It's called tyranny or dictatorship. Um, all you have to do is seize power, crush your rivals, reign through terror, control the truth, create a new society, and rule forever. Okay, it's a simple recipe. But this isn't good. Maybe, you know, is it effective? Maybe short-term for some people, but it's always cruel and it will always fail. We need something better. I've seen the effects of tyranny in our world. I've seen the jail cells of Papa Doc Duvalier in Haiti. I've seen, uh, you know, I've known our neighbors whose family have fled Libya under Muammar Gaddafi. My friends have been injured in the civil war under Bashar al-Assad in Syria. We know that how many neighbors we have come from these countries with civil war. We have a leadership problem in our world. We need something better. Proverbs 11 says this in verse 10, when it goes well with the righteous, the city rejoices. And when the wicked perish, there are shouts of gladness. We want leadership who will lead for the good of the people and the place and the nation. Those who for God's glory would leave a legacy of peace and prosperity for real. But it seems kind of hard to find seems really hard to find. It's, we're more likely to, to believe in some dystopian view of the future than maybe this utopian dream. It's more believable to imagine things going very badly than to imagine things going very well. Because our best efforts are always bound to fall short. Even our successes are going to be short-lived because we're all sinners who are bound in sin to death. So whether you live in Afghanistan or Canada, or Texas. We need a true and better leader, a king, a savior. This brings us to where Israel was in this context. These people were living under oppression, under Roman control. 
And for a long time, they wanted such a leader who would bring them freedom, such a king who would, who would be their freedom and bring their salvation. Um, Dwight shared this quote recently from another pastor who described the, the kind of the, the longing for a leader that Israel always had. But he says, when God's people don't get what they want as quickly as they want it, they will choose bad leaders who promise to deliver, but the result is always going backwards. So this is true of even Israel's history, longing for a king, but always coming up short. And it, it started all the way back at the beginning with Adam and Eve when they fell short in their covenant with God over the dominion and stewardship that they had on the earth. And since then, we all suffer in sin and perpetuate suffering by our sins. So Israel's kingdom was like this roller coaster of great success and massive failures all the time. But all the while, God was speaking to them about a king who would come one day and bring salvation and bring freedom. He spoke through the prophets saying that this king would be a different king. He would be a better king. He would be an eternal king. Um, he would be divine, that he would be human and also God, that his throne would be established in steadfast love, Isaiah says. So this would be amazing news for the people in Jerusalem and Israel on that day where Jesus made his triumphal entry into Jerusalem and people were singing Hosanna and laying down their coats. This should be the day that they recognize riding in on a donkey like Zacharias said would happen to the king. This would be amazing but they didn't recognize it. This should sound amazing to us today too. Wouldn't we want such a king? The problems that they faced in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago are the same kind of problems that we even face today in Montreal 2022. Maybe it looks a little different politically, culturally, but we're still sinners living under sinful people. Our best efforts will still always fall short and we are still in need of a savior. The amazing news is that in Mark 11, the triumphal entry here shows us that the king has come. So the reason that Jesus could be received with such praise, but also such rejection, though, is that his power comes in such a foreign way. It's a foreign concept to us, such a way that we'd never expect, even though we've always needed it. So, Let's unpack the ways that we've always needed this concept of a leader that Jesus provides. For our pride, he comes in humility. For our humanity, Jesus comes prophetically. And for our faults and our failures, Jesus comes triumphantly. So we're going to look at these three points, again, applying it a little bit more to us today. For our pride, Jesus comes as humble Savior. Mark 10, just the chapter before where we are right now, Jesus calls his disciples together and he says to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles, what do they do? They lord it over them. They're great ones. What do they do? They exercise authority over them. But he says, it shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And Dwight preached this a few weeks ago. And he says, even... The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for humanity and for many. So 
the reason why Jesus' humi- humility is so important for us is because it is the antidote to the poison of pride. It's the solution to this self-perpetuating tyranny of our own pride that we live in, that Jesus would come in humility. We want to control. We want to be great. We want to be served. But Jesus comes, holy God incarnate, and he assumes the posture and the position of humility. And Philippians Uh, Paul's letter to the Philippians describes it perfectly when he says that Jesus was in the form of God, but he didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He emptied himself. He took on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And it's because of that, the power of that humility that then we see in verse 9 of that, that chapter, Therefore, God has highly exalted him, bestowed on him the name that's above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's the triumphant power of humility. What does every tyrant or most political leader want? A name above every name people to bow down, people to just listen. Some will do this by force, but they could never succeed. And deep down though, this is true of all of us. How do I know this? Because I'm a father of three kids and my two-year-old wants to be a tyrant. It just comes naturally. We didn't teach him this stuff, but he wants to control everything. He thinks everybody uh, should serve him. And Yes, we grow up and we mature a little bit out of some of these things. We don't become tyrants because probably we have smaller circles of influence than most people, but that same pride still exists in our hearts. So we need a savior who is exalted to power through humility, destroying the oppression of the tyrants, but at the same time extinguishing our own selfish pride. And then he exalts the humble who find refuge in him. That's the humility of Jesus for us today. For our humanity, Jesus comes as prophetic Lord. We could never come up with uh, a human candidate who could solve the deepest problems that we face in suffering and sin and death. We never could. But scripture tells us that we have a candidate who represents us, who fights for us, who comes for us far better than any human, but is actually divine, prophetic Lord. So Peter writes this concerning our salvation, that the prophets who prophesied long ago, okay, just like Zechariah, what we read today, those prophets, when they prophesied about the grace that was going to be yours in the future, They were searching and inquiring carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. And it was revealed to them when they were doing this that they weren't serving themselves, but they were serving you, future believers, in the things that have now been announced to you. Um through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. And he says, 
Angels are longing to look into this kind of thing. But what Peter draws out for us, as we are looking at Jesus coming in on this donkey, fulfilling the prophecy from Zechariah, Peter's saying that uh, the significance that we need to recognize about Jesus' prophetic presence. God spoke through prophets like Zechariah hundreds of years before Christ's birth. Yet when Zechariah himself was searching and inquiring God's prophetic word, it was actually the spirit of Christ in him that he was listening to hundreds of years before the bodily incarnation of Christ. So to make it real simple, Jesus was telling Zechariah what was going to happen to Jesus. What and when and how. So yes, Jesus knew he was walking to Jerusalem to suffer and die and to rise again. Jesus knew that they were going to go up ahead and find that colt tied up in that small town for him to ride in on. And Jesus revealed to Zechariah that he wasn't just finding this out for himself, but he was serving you. He was serving you and me in that prophetic ministry of the gospel. We need a savior like that, don't we? A savior who rises up above our humanity, who goes beyond and above, who supersedes our own faults and failures and limitations, whose, whose divinity is proved um, through history and prophecy. And in Jesus, we find not just a man, not just a messenger, but the Lord. So the third point here is for our faults and our failures, Jesus comes as triumphant king. Okay, he comes for our pride. He comes with humility for our humanity. He comes as prophetic Lord. And for our faults and our failures, we see Jesus coming as triumphant king, the one who actually can get things done, the one who actually does bring the results, the one who actually has the power to save. We cry Hosanna all the time. We just don't use that word for it. But that word Hosanna means save, please, or save now. And this is, whether we're using those words, we're crying out in our heart all the time. Save us. Save us. Change something, please. We cry out Hosanna because we want salvation to come. For them, they wanted freedom from Roman oppression. We cry out for freedom from, you name it, fill in the blank. What is it that we cry out for freedom from? And we look to so many things or people or institutions who might be that savior this week or this year. But no one has ever proven triumphant. We need a king who is caring and capable. We need a God who is gracious and merciful and powerful to save. So is God able to save? Is God triumphant? In Jesus, we have more than a prophet, priest, and king um, whose victory is, is limited to this place. But he rises above. His victory is sure and his victory is eternal. He lasts and lives forever. It's not short-lived and it's not limited to an earthly term. So uh, the writer of Hebrews describes this, talking about the priesthood that Jesus has um, in the forgiveness of our sins, the, that office that he holds forever. He says that formerly there were so many different priests. The priests um, were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But Jesus holds his priesthood permanently because he continues 
forever. And so consequently, what is he able to do? He's able to save. How much is he able to save? To the uttermost, those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for him. This is the triumph of Jesus that we see in such a passage like this. So not only is he powerful to save, but he intercedes perfectly for us in eternity. It just so happens that, um, speaking of this point, when Jesus came to Jerusalem that day for the Passover festival, that was the day that people in Jerusalem were looking for something. They were going through the marketplaces to find the Passover lamb that they would sacrifice for the festival, for the forgiveness of their sins that week in celebration of the Passover um, from Israel's history in Egypt in, in the book of Exodus. But little did they know that proceeding right into the city was, as John the Baptist describes, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is part of the triumphal entry is that here's the sacrifice once for all, sacrifice being presented in Jesus to the whole nation of Israel and to the world who take refuge in him through faith. He did this through his sacrifice on the cross later that week. And that's where we ultimately will see his triumph. Here's the presentation of his kingdom and its king on the triumphal entry. But what Paul would later describe to, his, to the Colossians is that when Jesus went to that cross, he nailed, um, he took the, the, record of debt that stood against us. He nailed it to the cross that day and it says that he disarmed the rulers and authorities. That's the triumph. He disarmed them. And it says that he put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So time and time again, we see that Jesus is the one who truly comes with salvation. There's salvation in nobody else and that he has the power to save. Through Adam came sin and death to all mankind. And since then, Every best effort we put forth always falls short until we find Christ and in him eternal life. Without this Jesus, specifically the Jesus that we see humbly, prophetically, triumphantly, we will keep trying to fix God-sized problems with human-sized solutions. We need the humi humility, divinity, and victory of Jesus for true peace and eternal life then and now and forever. So let's wrap this up by applying this a little bit about how do we live this out now? What does this humility, prophecy, and victory mean for me? We might ask what, what the triumphal entry asks us really is, will we see Jesus for who he is? Will we praise Jesus for who he is? And will we follow Jesus for who he is? Will we see Jesus for who he is? We cannot see Jesus for any less than he reveals himself to be in scripture. What I mean is Jesus didn't come and present himself as this kind teacher or just a prophet, but no, he came as Lord and Savior. But we also can't see Jesus as more than he reveals to us in scripture. What I mean is, Jesus doesn't present himself as uh, this, this revolutionary uh, who comes to overthrow tyranny. He does, but he, he fights not against the, the humans, but against the spiritual realm. 
in his triumph. So we see Jesus humbly and prophetically triumphant. So some of us need to repent from seeing him as a docile teacher or pacifist. You know, later in this very chapter, Jesus is going to be cursing fig trees and flipping over tables. Okay, so he wasn't just passive. But some of us need to repent from seeing him as the political hero who's going to bring the freedom that we need in that way. Second point is, will we, see, will we praise Jesus for who he is? We talked about this word, Hosanna. Um, we, we look to many saviors crying out, save us, save us. But we have to call out our Hosanna to Christ, to him alone. He's our true savior. Not just for, you know, my place with God and I'll wait for that when I get to heaven, but here and now and, and in every area of our life, in every day of our life, he deserves our Hosanna, our cry of salvation to him. But we have to proclaim our Hosanna to Christ, not just singing along as the crowd sang along in the collective excitement of the day. It's so easy for us to sing along with even the worship songs that we do on Sundays. We know the familiar words and we just sound them out. But are they in our heart? So we need to lay down more than just uh, the words in our mouth, but lay down our life, uh, lay down our coat, as it were, as Jesus proceeding into the city, as he comes into our lives. We, we don't just praise him with the mouth, but through the actions in our life is one thing we can do this week. And we praise him as the Passover lamb who uh, paid the price for sinners living under sinful people. Here's the beauty of the cross is that if you're feeling the weight and constraint and the suffering under uh, leaders who will always fall short, well, Jesus dealt with all that suffering on the cross. He carried those burdens, the burdens you're carrying. He carried them on the cross. But at the cross, he also dealt with all the sins, past, present, and future, that are going on in our life, in our heart. So, uh, wrap up with this in how we can follow Jesus now. Seeing Jesus and praising him as he is, is perfect, and now we follow him. Um, what does it look like for you to follow this Jesus? What does it look like for us as city groups or local congregations to follow this Jesus? What I'll say is, it's impossible for you to live the humble life of Christ. Our pride, the depth of our pride stains even our greatest charity. It's going to be impossible for you to live the prophetic and supernatural life of Christ because our fallen nature corrupts every area of our life. And it will be impossible for us to live the triumphant life of Christ with victory over sin and death because we sin every day. Our faults and our failures beset us. So we can't go out and try harder. That's not what Jesus' triumphal entry shows. But he shows that his, he's, he's come to bring a new kingdom that exists in a new temple in our hearts, in our lives, through his spirit in us. The last verse of this passage, verse 11, says Jesus went to the temple. He looked around, kind of maybe took some mental notes, and it was late that night, so he went back to Beth, Bethany with, with the other disciples. But we know that that temple wasn't going to live forever. But Jesus was inaugurating a new temple, a new people. And even Psalm 118 says that the, the stone that was rejected would become the cornerstone. So Jesus knew that week he was going to be the cornerstone of a new temple where he, 
people would not have to come to him to try harder, but that he would come to them with his spirit so that his humility would be your humility. So that his prophetic ministry would be your prophetic ministry as you experience the fruit of the spirit and the gifts of the spirit with guidance from him. And that his victory would be our victory. That he has defeated sin and death on our behalf for us. So whatever it's going to look like, it should look humble. It should look prophetic. And it should look triumphant. It should look triumphant. It should look humbly, prophetically triumphant. We, we get through our through our day, through times like this, a lot of people around us get through their day by opening the headlines. What is, what's the word for me today? What's, what's the news? What can I do? What can't I do? But we get to take our cues from a greater source. We get to open our Bible and see, uh, you know, whatever lays ahead, whether, whether I know what lays ahead or not, whether it be a donkey or a cross, well, I don't know what the future holds, but I know who holds the future. We can do this through Jesus, humbly, prophetically, triumphantly. So I'm going to pray and invite Andy, our brother up here, to share a testimony from his heart. So Father God, thank you so much for sending us the leader that we've always needed yet never expected. This foreign concept of a Christ, a king who is humble and divine and triumphant. God, I pray that you would help us as we cry, Hosanna, save us now and save us, please, with the sins we face in our own lives and the sins that we suffer under. Help us now, we pray in your name, Jesus. Amen.